You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Nigel Campbell. Nigel is a fantastic dancer, and he's also the co-founder, co-artistic director of Move NYC, a free summer dance intensive for New York City youth. We went to Juilliard together, and we've reconnected over the past couple of years. I am so inspired by his point of view as an artist, and the work that he and Chanel Da Silva have done to create Move NYC is incredible. I had interviewed Chanel back in March, I believe on episode 23, when they were still in the planning and fundraising stages, and I was eager to hear from Nigel about how it all turned out. I hope you enjoy the 47th episode of The Compass. Start, you jump right in there. I'm not pulling any punches. Wow. Um, that's where we start, and then we'll go all over the place. Okay. Um, that's a great question, actually. And I think what I found recently um, in the last year, since I moved back to New York a year ago from Sweden, was that uh, working, doing more work in the community, sharing everything that I've learned, all the experiences that I've had and creating opportunities for other people is what keeps me sane because I was actually drifting dangerously close to the dark side. Uh, my last, I'd say, half a year in Sweden, um, and I knew I needed, a, I needed a change. Something was off, and I've gotten so much inspiration from sharing everything. It's like, almost like a, I, was, I felt like a hoarder. And I had all this extra stuff that isn't supposed to be just for me. And so it was weighing me down. And the more I can unleash it, let it out, and let it manifest through other people, the better I feel and the lighter I feel. Yeah. So when you came back to New York, question one, was the decision to come back to New York partly because of that dark side? And question two, did you come back knowing you were going to work for Give Me Dance or finding that once you got here and that I know that they do a lot of the social work and right. stuff that is letting you have this outlet. Right. Um, yeah, so the answer is, is is A, question A. I felt like I was becoming, I felt like if I stayed in Sweden any longer, and I had this really great job, it was really strange and it was a mental process because I had finally achieved what I felt like I kind of have been had been working my entire training and career to achieve, like this kind of quote-unquote dream job thing. Um, and I was there, and in that time in my life, in what was going on in the world, and in the context of where I was in the world at the time, um, being who I was in Sweden, I, I felt myself becoming angry and confused and, um, oh, wow. <laughs> and I felt like if I stayed there any longer, I was going to become someone that I didn't want to be um, because I'm not angry. And uh, you know me. And I, I have a big personality and a bright spirit. And I was losing that 
And um, so I felt like I needed to go home and kind of plug into the outlet. I felt like I was a cell phone and my battery was running really low and I just needed to go home and plug into the wall because I was there by myself. I had no one to talk to. I had no one who I felt understood me or or understood um, many facets about me as an American, as a black man. Um, all of my family and friends were thousands of miles away. And so whenever I would deal with something, I didn't really have an outlet for it. And so um, I felt myself getting, just becoming this dark hole. And um, it wasn't worth it to be in a big company, an opera house, and have six weeks of paid vacation to not be happy. And so... Two and a half years. But I was away from New York for seven years. I was in Germany first, and then I moved to Chicago, which was just as much of a culture shock. Midwest is very different. Yes, totally different than New York. And then I moved to Sweden for two and a half years. Um, so I quit my job. I had no job prospects. I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't do any auditions. I literally just said, I need to go home, and I will figure it out once I get there. But I can't be here right now. Um, so, yeah. It's kind of amazing, because I feel like as artists, we're so often told to be like, well, there's so few opportunities. If you get one of those prized opportunities, you have to just mm-hmm. say yes and yes, and you're lucky. And, and you're lucky. And if you know that it's not healthy for you as an individual, mm-hmm. I'm really happy that I made that choice, and it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people told me that I shouldn't do that and that I was crazy. Um, my family, a lot of my teachers, um, a lot of people in the dance community, because exactly what you said, there are no jobs. And right now, jobs are shrinking. There's right. less and less opportunities. And in Europe, the quality of oh job my God. life. And the quality of job life and the quality of life is yeah. just. <laughs> Oh, it's totally different. It's like unfathomable to most dancers that I speak to here. But again, I just was at this place where I thought the six weeks of vacation and the physical therapy aren't worth it. You know, if I'm not happy as a human being. And so ironically, I hadn't even heard of Gibney Dance. Um, I didn't know. I knew of it as a place where you could take open classes, but I didn't know that they had a company. And so I got back, and this is a whole nother point, but it really speaks to why it's important to live in your truth. I got back, and they were having auditions, and people started sending me the flyer, like Facebook messaging it to me, because it said they were looking for experienced dancers who were interested in social action, and they were actively seeking diversity. Mm-hmm. And so people were like, this sounds like all the stuff that you like. <laughs> and I moved back August 19th. I was getting the flyers. Yeah, exactly. Just after a year. But I started at Gibney one year ago. Exactly one year ago. So I I got the flyer. The audition was before I got back. I wrote them and said that I was away. They actually, they did their audition, but they held off on hiring someone. And I got back. I did a private audition. And they hired me. It all happened very fast. And then two weeks later... One year ago, 
exactly almost I started working there and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. That's amazing that they waited for you. I, you know, when you just follow the path, like, you know, just listen, everything just fell into place. It was so crazy and unpredictable. I didn't expect that. I had saved enough money. Well, I thought I saved enough money to last until December. It wasn't enough to last until December. Yeah, exactly. It like, was going down very fast. But I thought, you know, I'll live at home with my mother. I'm lucky because I'm from here. Uh-huh. And I'll do what I need to do until I find something. And that might take six months. And that might take a year. And the universe just said, this was the right decision. Here's the path. Go on it. It's crazy. It was crazy. Tell us about what you do there. Because the, the part that, I mean, it's a dance company and you perform, mm-hmm. but Yeah, which is the part that's interesting. I mean, it's all interesting for me. <laughs> but that was what that's separated it. Yes. How, how do you use mm-hmm. to make change? Oh, oh, this is great. I'm so glad you asked this. Yeah. <laughs> I had vowed, I was like, I'm done with dance companies. I need to be working in the community. I didn't even know if I would keep dancing. I thought maybe I'll just go back to school and learn policy or learn law and do something where I can impact the community. So then along, and I failed at that mission because I joined a dance company immediately. So, but what made them so different was this focus on community and social action. So what we do at Gibney Dance is that we have a three-pillared dance company. It's a very interesting and exciting model, I think. So, as you said, we do the the dance work and the performance work. We learn pieces from various choreographers and we perform them. And then the second pillar of that is community action. And we work extens- extensively with survivors of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And what we do is we go to different shelters all around the city and we lead movement workshops with the survivors Um, and the purpose of these workshops isn't it's not a dance workshop and it's not to give them class what it does do is facilitate them taking back ownership and autonomy over their bodies and when you're in these kinds of situations it's the body that's attacked and that's why dance is actually such a great tool for this it's the body that's attacked. It's it's you as a person that you, something's stripped away from you. And so when you ask them to create a movement, first of all, we're talking about choice. Mm-hmm. And then everyone is watching that movement. We have everyone repeat the movement. And so we're talking about affirmation. We're talking about creating safe spaces. We're talking about getting in touch with our body in a creative way. And it's very simple, actually, but it's so incredibly powerful. Um, I had no idea, and I, had, I knew very little about domestic violence. Um, and through Gibney, I learned how pervasive this is globally. And so basically, we give them a space. We don't delve into trauma. We don't talk about the past. We create, and we create a light hearted and uh, open and trusting space where they feel safe to access their body, to make choices and have those choices affirmed. We also do preventative work and so we go around the city to various middle schools and high schools and we do a lecture demonstration series called Hands Are For Holding 
And so basically we show three short pieces um, and we use those to start conversations about what healthy and unhealthy relationships look like. And what makes dance so amazing, such an amazing tool to do this, is that all of the same things that make healthy relationships work are what make dance work. So we have to communicate. We have to share weight equally. We have to trust each other, right? And if we don't do those things, the dance doesn't work. And so what I love about this work and why it clicks for every, I mean, everyone, this lecture demonstration series is amazing. Why it clicks is because we'll do something, some partnering, say we'll sit back to back, and you have to push back against each other and lift yourselves up off the floor. You're sitting on the floor, right? And so unless you push back on each other equally, and unless you, you can't see each other, so unless you trust each other and you have this nonverbal communication, you can't get up. And you see them try and fail and try and fall, and you see them finally get it, and suddenly it's not theoretical. So I can talk to you about why you need to, why relationships need to be equal and why this and why that. And that's all theory. But when you're physically doing it, it doesn't work unless you do it. And then it clicks for them that this is a metaphor that they can carry into all of their relationships. And so I think it's really powerful work. Um, on top of that, we're also an integral part of the center at Gibney Dance. So we teach, we, uh, we have responsibilities with programming at the center as well, and we each have fellowships where we create programming. Um, so it's a, they're really training us to be leaders. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. And um, the amount of possibility that's there. Gina Gibney is the founder and CEO and our director, and she really wants to enable those coming after her to use dance to make po a positive impact on the world and that's really inspiring for me it's incredible to not just be employed but to have someone who's interested in your education and yes. your expansion yes your growth yes we that's we incredible. affectionately call it gibney dance university <laughs> <laughs> i'm in my sophomore yeah, year <laughs> that's what it feels like sometimes yeah Do you find teaching to be a calling or a passion of yours, or do you find it as a necessary means to employment on the mm -hmm. side, and then not, not right. your bag? Right. You know? Right. You know, I'm going to say both. Because I love teaching, and I love being an educator, and I love, and maybe this is like not good of me to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> um, I love identifying talent and cultivating talent that has the potential to move the game forward, to move the profession forward. Particularly, I love all of them, but I, in particular, people who might not always or normally have access or people who are underrepresented in leadership roles in the field yeah. because if we can get them and give them the information to get them to the level then we can foster a more diverse community and i think that that's i think dance a lot of people feel disconnected from it i think um funding is so difficult companies are closing left and right and i think unless we start addressing why and I think a part of that has to do with we're not telling enough people's stories. Mm. 
people don't feel connected. Exactly. So the more niche the art form becomes, the less people want to see it. We're suddenly it's not a universal experience anymore. So it's not about saving the poor kids. It's really about saving the art form. Um, that being said, now a lot of times the necessary evil, quote unquote, of te- doing a teaching gig, teaching an open class, um, sometimes it's necessary. And that is not my passion. So a one-off teaching gig where a bunch of strangers come in and you teach them. And with these open classes, you never know how many people are going to show up. Right, it the could skill level, The whatever. skill level. So it's not really a training environment. I can't really make you better in one class. And you might not be interested in it. So some people just want to take class and get warm. Some people want to take class and feel good about themselves. They don't want you screaming at them, telling them to fix their feet and straighten their leg and travel more. You know, I teach a hard class. I'm very physical. I'm very passionate. I'm screaming. I'm yelling. And, I, you know, it's a lot of energy to expend on people that you don't know and who don't necessarily want a lot of information. Um, so in that way, it teaching can also be kind of taxing. Um, when I enjoy it is when it's in a an environment with people who are working uh, towards something. And that's why I like to work with young people, because they don't know their ability yet, which is so beautiful, because we see them. Yeah, and you uh, help them to realize that. They're like, oh, I can't do that. And like, you can do that. <laughs> you actually can. Yeah, or I had a teacher that said, you can't do it yet. Mm. That doesn't mean that you won't ever be able to do it, and I'm here to help you. One-off teaching. Eh, not quite my thing. I had Chanel De Silva on in March, so a long time ago. Yay. Who was your classmate at Juilliard and your lifelong friend and your collaborator. Yes. And um, so we talked a little bit about Move NYC, which is this new program that you guys developed while it was still in like the fundraising wow. yeah. stage yes. in March. And then right. you guys just did the actual program. We just finished. Class. Yes, we just okay. finished. Uh huh. So I was very excited to have you on to talk about, like, because this was something you guys just brainstormed and made happen from your toes. Yeah, literally. I'm curious to hear about how it went and what the experience was from March till now. Yeah. Wow. I don't know where to start, but... Yeah. Well, let's start from March. It sounded like it was very exciting. It was (laughs) incredible, um, and I think it was only looking back in reflection, I've had like a week or I've had two weeks to process so I actually think it's good because I needed to kind of filter through everything to even understand what we did um yeah like you said Chanel and I literally created this from nothing we just materialized (laughs) this thing out of nowhere um we had no startup capital to I mean so for anyone who doesn't know Moving YC is a tuition-free summer dance program geared exclusively towards talented and motivated New York City teenagers. And we prioritize those who have the the gift but may not have the money to train competitively. Um, Is that something that's expected of dancers to take these summer programs? Oh, it's so important at the high school level to do the summer intensives because you grow as much in the summer as you do over the entire year. 
all day. Our program was 8.30 to 6 p.m. And yeah, you're meeting different. So all the best kids from all the schools around the city are now together. It's not, I, When we tell them, you're going to know these people for the rest of your artistic life. Um, so, and this intensive environment of like, it's three weeks, it's four weeks, and I get it all in. And so you push yourself harder than when you're like, I have a whole year. Um, but they can be, they're like 3000 to $5,000. And that puts them out of reach for an awful lot of talented people. And, um, you know, Chanel and I are familiar with, I know you're, you're familiar with Malcolm T. Gladwell and the 10,000 hours. Yeah. yeah, so it takes 10,000 hours to become a master at something. So if you think about that um, objectively, you even if you both go to, say two kids go into a performing arts high school in New York on the same level, they train all year. They work equally as hard. They're equally as gifted. Then one of them does a summer intensive, and that's approximately another, I don't know, whatever. It could be another, uh, like, a 1,000 hours, let's say, mm-hmm. yeah, that you're putting in over the summer. And so you improve. Not only does the other person not improve, they get worse because they haven't danced all summer. So now you go into your second year of high school, and you're at a higher level. You improve equally, but you're not on the same level anymore during that year, and you repeat the same thing the next summer. Now we're seeing a big gap. We go into junior year, we do the same thing. Senior year happens, the gap is huge. And by the time we get to senior year, we're auditioning for colleges. The other person who works equally as hard and is equally as gifted isn't on the level because they haven't put in those hours, and you can't make them up. College determines yeah. the, the level or the, the, how good the college you go to will determine the next four years of your training. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking about a four-year deficit. Uh, and with dancers, it's like if you don't get that in early, it's over. It's over. So, so essentially, Chanel and I have both benefited our entire lives from a free education. People who believed in us and they thought that we could be great. And we have had these fantastic careers which we're so happy and blessed and humbled by and we were sitting down together in a Irish pub in Sweden and we brainstormed this thing this thing called Move NYC and we did everything we could to make it happen and you talked to Chanel while we were in the phase of making it happen so after March we had a benefit dance concert called Let's Move Now um, it was sold out it was a fabulous show. We had a silent auction. We auctioned off two tickets to Hamilton. Dinners <laughs> here and there. We had a fabulous reception. It was really great. Um, we, March, April. Wow. March is so far back. I so know, in so April, we did our audition tour. That's right. So we met all of the kids. Yeah. And we were shocked because we launched December 1st of 2015. We had a fundraising event at the end of February, right before Chanel spoke with you. And after that, in March, we started advertising for the audition tour. So we didn't know if anyone would show up. Could be 50 people, could be 20 people, could be 100 people. 175 kids showed up. We went to every single borough because our, our, one of our two major pillars is access. So we didn't just do an audition in Manhattan. We went into Queens. So we went. Maybe their parents won't bring them, you know. We went to the bottom of Staten Island, to the top of the Bronx, um, to find talent where it lives. 
and we saw 175 beautiful young dancers, and we chose 30 of that 175. 30 gems that we just felt like were so beautiful and special. Um, what was the age range? It was just high school. Thir- well, it's 13 to 18. So it was essentially 7th, yeah, 7th to 12th. Okay. Um, but m- we had, I think, three or four kids who were in the 7th and 8th grade, and then the majority, the vast majority, are in high school. So we had some advanced middle schoolers. <laughs> um and so we found the kids. They were so beautiful. Um, they were exactly who we were looking for. Um, so we were really proud of that, that the, the, the messaging was right. Like we called and we manifested the right somebody kids. Heard yeah, somebody heard us. And they, heard, they heard us correctly. Um, and that did a lot to raise awareness about the program. The Benefit Concert did a lot. And then in August, we started the program. And it was a whirlwind. I mean... <laughs> It was three weeks, three weeks, weeks, six days a week, 8.30 to 6. They took ballet and contemporary every day. They took improvisation. They took jazz. They took yoga. They learned repertory from various different uh, people and various different genres. They each participated in a creation with either me, Chanel, or a colleague of ours, Lonnie Landon, also from New York, also went to Juilliard, also a Princess Grace winner. But then outside of the studio, we had leadership seminars. We have a class called The Gist that Chanel and I teach, which is a career management class where we built aspirational resumes. So we taught them how to build a resume, and then we built a resume that went until they were 30. So what college did you go to? Which companies did you join? Think ahead, plan. What do you want? Start thinking about that now, like a vision board kind of thing. Um, we. <laughs> we gave them each free professional headshots. We did a photo shoot in Dumbo. We sent our three high school graduates to see Hamilton on Broadway. We gave we did guest panel discussions with successful working artists that come from communities similar to theirs so that they could see the other so the one pillar is access, the other is representation. So seeing these people came from exactly where you came from and look what they're doing. Anything is possible for you. Um, So basically our goal was to throw every possible tool we could at them for them to be great. Um, They also had free physical therapy. I mean, it was just amazing. And it was hard. And it was really difficult um, because we didn't dumb it down for them. And a lot of them haven't had access to summer programs. So they were... They were crying. Yeah. You know, there were breakdowns every it's day. Too it's too much. I don't. Everyone's really good. I don't feel like I'm good enough. We've all been in that place. We've, and it's a necessary place. If you want to, we called them breakthroughs. You know, like, okay, cry. Cry now. And now let's figure it out. Yeah. And we're here for you. And you did this, um, just technically, you did this at the Gibney space or somewhere else? Yes, so Gibney is our founding partner. They've been absolutely incredible. We hosted all of our events at Gibney. Um, We're working in close partnership with Gibney and um, all of the uh, program itself, as well as the finale showcase happened at Gibney. That's beautiful. I know that your mission as Movement NYC also kind of continues their mission to create leaders. And and that's why I brought it to them when I joined the company, because they're... 
perfect timing. Oh my God. Thank you, universe. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect it's, it's perfect. And that just is an affirmation that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, so at the end, we had their finale showcase, and they knocked it out of the park. Two sold out, two sold out shows. Um, people were crying, and I was so confused. You will see the next one, girl. I'm sure they were crying because it was beautiful. Well, and I, you know, and I again, we were just in do it mode. So we we're like, okay, get it done, do this, do this, do this. And then we're like, why is everyone crying? It was a nice show. I don't understand. And then it hit me after. I'm sure you were crying at some point. You know why. I was crying later. Okay. I was, li- we were trying to and get it done. Yeah, achieve. but I didn't, I just wanted, I was trying to achieve it. <laughs> I was just and like, there I'm sure when we saw them at the show, because also we don't know the kids and some people buckle under the pressure. It was a, it was a high pressure environment, you know, and we didn't know what would happen at the show. Um, and they really stepped up to the plate. They brought it. And it was, it underscored everything that Chanel and I have known and believed and been working towards for this program, that if you give them the opportunity, if you give them the access, they will rise to the occasion. They will take it, but they need someone to give it to them, you know? Um, And that was powerful. We taught them how to write emails. I mean, these kids skills to pass on to them or know how to pass it on to them that's important and part of our the gist our career management class is telling them informing them some of you can rely on your parents and some of you can't and nobody cares which one you are all they care about is that you show up on time figure it out you might this one might have more help than this one but all the other people care about all the 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 person at the audition the director of the company the president of the school, all they care about is that it's done. And you might have to do a little bit more work than this person. And that is what it is. Accountability. So for you as an artist, mm-hmm. I want to know about like that month leading up to the start of the intensive in August. Yeah. And like, what was hard for you guys mm-hmm. creating this program? What was difficult in that last month? How was it Oof. interesting and hard to pull together and scramble and get people to help yeah. you and all of that. That's what I want to know. Whew, yeah. It's hard to produce something. It's, it's easy when you just get to create. Yeah. But you were doing everything. 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 It was a, a three-man show. Me, Chanel, and our chief of staff, Naya, who is a volunteer as well. So we're all volunteering our time. Hi, Naya. I love you, girl. <laughs> um, right, exactly. Um, the month leading up to the inaugural session was super intense. There was so much organization that needed to happen. And, you know, what I realized as an artist and spending my life in the arts as a dancer was how kind of ill-prepared my education had left me to do anything other than be a dancer. And that's something that I had been kind of grappling with all year while we were building this and working at Gibney and learning all these new skills. But I had to make teacher contracts. Chanel was doing the orientation packets, making sure everyone was clear about this, making sure that the checks were cut 
and ready to be given to the faculty members. Uh, dealing with schedules of working artists whose schedules change, and now they can't do this, and now I have to find someone new. Um, for our benefit concert, we lost the space that we thought we had a month before. Now what do we do? And all of that happening while Chanel and I both have full-time jobs. So we can't dedicate as much time during the day to this, even though this is a full-time job, because I'm working from 10 to 6. And Chanel's working from 10 to 6. And so it's working for full-day physical work. We're dancers, right? So then you're exhausted at 6. It's 100 degrees outside. <laughs> and you have to figure all of this stuff out, as well as you need to go to dinner and drinks with this person. And you need to meet with this uh, potential supporter of the program. And you need to make sure these emails go out. And you need to inform the kids of what's going on because they're young. You need to inform their parents. What's happening at the launch party? Is it ready? I, what? Who's doing the lighting assignment and the, the stage managing for the concert? Right. Is there going to be Marley down? We need to build, we need five extra bars. Somebody has to order that. Um, there's so much that goes into it outside of the realm of the art. And all we want to do really is train the kids. <laughs> stretch them, push them. Um, But in order to make that happen, all of the other stuff has to happen. And so kind of going into, I had to take four days and I left New York and I kind of went to a lake in Massachusetts and I just sat there for a little bit. Not as much as I wanted to. The email still had to go. (laughs) Um, But during that time. This is, yeah, this is the, this is the week before the program. Uh, yeah, because I wouldn't have survived the program. It was, you know, we taught ballet, modern, career management, choreographed, and directed the program. And for you, I'm sure it was a 24 hour thing. 24 hours. Yeah. 24. We were there with the kids at 8 30. They finished at 6, and then we had staff meetings every night. We were figuring it. Something goes wrong every day. Of course. <laughs> you know? self-care oh no they'll allow you to run yourself into the ground and I mean I definitely had like a nervous twitch in my left eye and I was definitely having like panic attacks (laughs) (laughs) so that definitely happened um and I was able to take a vacation after and lay on a beach at Turks and and, uh, on Turks and Caicos for five days and I'm happy to say that my eye is normal again and I am not waking up in cold sweats so (laughs) that's good good for you yeah no but you know it's also it was a huge artistic as an artist um I feel different and I feel like I'm gaining the skills uh, you know, just calling, now I'm thinking of it, and, you know, people ask me, you meet someone, and they say, what do you do? And dancer seems somehow reductive or inadequate now. Just, just a dancer. Incomplete. 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 Because now I have all of these skill sets. And kind of knowing that you're capable of doing that, is really rewarding. So it's exhausting, and it was very stressful, and we knew that it would be, but when you've just never experienced that much, there's no way to really know how it's going to feel. And you're also dealing with teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the Move NYC kids very much. 
but they are 30 New York City teenagers. And that is just what they should be. <laughs> and that's beautiful. Oh, oh, I was just as bad, if not worse. So I get it. It's so much. Luckily, I had two weeks after to decompress before starting work again. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. It was a knockout first year. I can't believe that it was just our first year. Yeah. Several years. And people were like, how'd the program go? And like, June. Yes, it, it, it hasn't it's happened yet. <laughs> We're yeah. st- this is just the part where you give us money. www.movenyc.nyc. <laughs> 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 so I guess my follow-up question is, yeah, like, looking forward to next year. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you want to do it again. Yes. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And then what sort of changes do you want to make next mm-hmm. year, either to change your role in it or to up what you're giving the kids, or yeah. I can't even think about it until January, and then you'll have a discussion. Oh, no, we're thinking about it. Okay. We have a meeting on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically what we are trying to create now, the, the objective and the mission is always to do more, get more visibility, raise more money so that we can create more opportunities. Um, so this was definitely a very well-conceived and well-thought-out pilot, but we want to do more. Um, so first of all, we're going to have several check-in points throughout the year, which actually we haven't talked to anybody about. You're the first person we're talking to about. <laughs> okay. um, like with the past participants? With the, with the alumni. And that the was, alumni. We were calling them. Yes, so the 30 kids who participated. Okay. So actually on September 24th, we're doing a pop-up performance for a series that we're calling Move NYC Pops. And um, it'll be an outdoor performance outside of a restaurant called Chai Wally in Harlem. And we're going to have the kids uh, with live music perform in the street outside of Chaiwali as a kind of celebration of the end of summer and a celebration of the success of the first year. And also for them to give them a performance opportunity. And in different, yeah, it's not just in a theater. Sometimes you'll be outside and uh, they'll be doing it periodically between one to four. And in between that time, they'll be mixing and mingling and exercising all the networking skills that they learned during the three weeks, hopefully. Um, In January, we're going to meet back up again and uh, do another Movie NYC Pop series uh, with BAM at the BAM Kids Film Festival. And so uh, during the film festival, the kids will do another flash mob style pop-up performance uh, at BAM on Saturday and Sunday at the end of January. I'm not sure of the exact dates. Um, we're going to do a winter intensive, a three-day oh three-day winter intensive at the end of February, I believe. Don't quote me. Um, but we're that's... Oh, yeah, you're getting the... This is the first... No one knows this yet. <laughs> it's not announced. Um uh, and then in April we'll do our audition tour as always and we're going to have the kids hopefully our, our goal is to have the kids perform at the benefit concert this year to give them yet another opportunity not only an opportunity to, to perform but an opportunity to share the stage with professional working artists and then going into the program there's still so much that needs to be discussed about evaluating everything that happened this year uh, what we'd like to change what more we'd like to do, 
what we'd like to rearrange. And that's that's something that we're still, we have time to discuss and think about. Um, but what's been great is that now people know what the program is. There's, there's clarity about what it is, who the kids are, what the level is, and how much you can achieve in three, much weeks. Achieve in three weeks. And so a lot of people have been really inspired by what we've done, and now they're, all, what can I do? I want to teach. I want to be a part of it. Like, you know, really great people who want to share their information as well because they believe in, in the mission of what we're doing. So there's a lot of opportunity for year two to implement a lot of new faces, um, a lot of different and varied and diverse information from people who have very different career paths. And we have to decide how we can fit all the puzzle pieces together to make that happen. Um, but we're very excited. There's lots of opportunities. We had our photo shoot during the program, and all of those photos will be used for all of our marketing materials. So it's just going to be the level of professionalism and excellence is just going to go up. We pulled all of our marketing materials from web images and screenshots from cell phone videos. For 2016, for our marketing, it was all like images right. pulled from the web I mean, or like a. Just as a friend on Facebook of you two, like the videos you were posting throughout those three weeks of the classes and mm. the kids, like just got me so excited knowing what they were going through and the people you were collaborating with. I mean, incredible. wow. The and faculty. It'll be even more professional. It'll be even more. I mean, it was great. It was great, but it's going to keep going you guys up. guys know how to use social media. <laughs> Right, as a person. <laughs> Social media is real. I was impressed. It's real. Listen, and it's it's not only real, it's also a fundraising tool. And, you know, actually, um, we're very excited. I don't know if this has been announced either, so I won't say exactly what it is. But someone um, approached us to do uh, this competition um, in November where they basically bring prominent New York figures in and they bring in dance schools uh, or people representatives of dance schools and they put them together kind of like dancing with the stars and you compete for scholarship money for your organization but just by entering you get a donation and then the winner gets a larger donation and so they approached us because they had seen the work that we were doing through our social media presence. And that translates into more visibility and more access to funds to do more for the kids. So Facebook is real. Instagram is real. I'll teach you the ways. <laughs> no, you're, you're good, girl. Well, moving out of Rhythm All right. Yes. I could talk about it for years. Let's give space. How has your family reacted to you choosing a life Hmm. I have always had a very supportive family, and I'm very lucky that I have such a supportive family. Um, when I was much younger, um, of course, it wasn't the first choice of my parents. And I was I was academic in school. I was you know I did I was good at that as well. And so the real kind of conversation happened when it came time to go to high school in New York. We have uh, what are called specialized schools. They're like magnet schools. Um, and at the time, there's more now, but at the time, three of them were science and math schools. 
And one of them was an art school, which is LaGuardia High School, the fame school. And so I got into all of them. And your parents have to kind of sign off, you know, so you, you choose what school you want to go to and you're a child. So your parents have to <laughs> say that they, and, you know, my parents, the school, the junior high school that I went to, and my parents wanted me to go to one of the science schools. And I, of course, wanted to go to LaGuardia. Side note, I got in for acting and dance. Yeah, I could have been. You know, we could have we could have did a scene together. I know. I don't think I would have gotten into Juilliard. So, I mean, um, so my mother told me this. I don't remember, but she said that I said to her, "Either you're for me or you're against me." I was twelve, and and every time you tell me that you don't want me to go here, you're telling me that you don't believe in me. Have you been doing dance from a young age? No, I mean, yeah, not young in comparison to most people. But I started around. 11 or 12 which is super late so, okay. so I was in the 6th, 7th grade, 7th grade probably you just, you just knew that that was something that you had a I, I was actually really bad at it <laughs> at first, I was super short, I was chubby I wasn't flexible, but I was smart and I was musical and I was passionate and I understood movement um, and it wasn't that I was making the decision to be a dancer at that time, I just yeah. knew that I was really excited about dancing and I wanted to do it more um, and I don't think I ever decided to be a dancer. I just keep doing it. Every, I just wake up each day and I do it again. So, um, but so I think that was kind of the moment where for my family, it was like, okay, well, if he wants to do this, what can we do to help facilitate his, his, his dream, even though it wasn't what they would have imagined. And I think it's been a process of them learning with me. Because my mother's thing was always, you're going to live out of a cardboard box. You're never going to have any money. Um, and it's also been a wake-up call because whenever I complain about the state of the arts or living out of a cardboard box, I don't live in a cardboard <laughs> box, but whatever, you know, uh, she says to me, you chose this. You wanted to do this. You could have done something else, and this is what you wanted to do. So stop complaining. And like you said, learning what it is because you didn't know. When I didn't know what it is. Like, she didn't know. I had no idea. I mean, who knew? And certainly not my parents. So I think, you know, when you when I got into Juilliard, um, they look at you a little differently. Your family, your parents, they're like, oh, so you're good. Yeah, like I've heard that. Right. So you're like very good. Okay. okay. And then I think as time progressed, you know, I moved to Germany. I lived in Sweden. I've kind of been over the world dancing, um, and to go back to what we just did with Move NYC, having them there to see what I've been able to do with a life in the arts, I think, so I think it's been a, a huge learning process for them about what's possible. And I always say, and I think that they understand this now, that if you're not passionate about something, you're not going to do it well. And so, yeah, I could have done something else, but I'm making my path in this and it's hard and dancing is hard and being an artist is hard and we live in a country that doesn't support our art in the way that it should and that's difficult and we live in New York which is extremely expensive mm -hmm. but I'm passionate about what I do I believe in what I do and so I wake up every day and I live a purposeful life
and that's more rewarding to me. I'd be, I I can't be unhappy. And they see the the value in that as a parent. As a parent, they yeah. see that, and and the opportunities that it's afforded me. You know, yeah. I was happy living in Europe to give my family an excuse to go to Europe. You know, yeah. come visit me, and let's go to Paris while you're here. Because it's an hour and a half away, you know, and that made me feel good as well. Um, so yeah, so they've been very supportive and they're very proud of me, and yeah, that's that feels good. Can we talk a little bit about your time in Europe? Oh yeah. We can, um, we, we can not if you don't want to. No, let's I'm talk about it. About that dichotomy of oh, that's kind of the goal for a lot of Juilliard dancers is to work at a European company and. Mm-hmm. as a yeah. black man mm. and as a black gay man yeah. in, in Germany in Sweden mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's really interesting and important so I'm, yeah. I'm just curious no I think you know I I had a very traumatic time um, particularly in Sweden I didn't but you know I went to Germany and I was very young I was right out of school so I was and I lived in New York my whole life I was very excited uh, I was in Saarbrücken, in Germany, which is a very small town on the okay. French border. It's so near Strasbourg. Berlin, right? I was not in Berlin. Okay. No, it was like 180,000 people, <laughs> you know, like 180,000 people in a small town in Germany. And I had lived in New York my entire life. Um, but it was exciting at the time. And the kind of exoticism was exciting. People were excited about me right. just because uh, just because yeah. I would yeah. walk in, everyone was like, "Oh my god," and that was cool. Cause in New York, I was just like everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't just like everybody else, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know what I mean. So I found that kind of exciting, and I was also soaking in all of the new, new language. It was my first job out of school. It was my first time away from my friends and family, and I felt like I had this opportunity to reinvent myself. For me, it felt like what most people must feel like when they go to college. You move away from home, from your friends and family. You didn't have that here. I went, acro- I went to high school across the street from college. Right. The teachers all knew each other. A lot of people from my school were there. I didn't feel like I had the chance to really just become a whole new person. So this was my chance to do that, and I found that incredibly exciting. Fast forward to Sweden. It was my third company. I was quite a bit older. I had quite a strong sense of who I was as a, as a human being um, because of all of the years leading up to that. And realizing now, I realize it's only later, that I was there at the beginning of the European migrant crisis. So, you know, all of the, there were a lot of displaced Middle Eastern people and displaced African people coming into Europe. Sweden had a kind of open-door policy because politically they're quite liberal. And all of the European countries, and particularly Sweden, were reaching their capacity. And so what we've seen globally is a kind of pushback and a leaning towards right-wing conservatism. We see it here. We see, you know, neo-Nazi parties rising up. We see 
the reinsurgence of and a boldness of the KKK and, you know, racism and sexism and xenophobia. And, you know, we were seeing all of that. But there wasn't really, there wasn't a name for the migrant crisis yet. It was just, it was at the tipping point. It wasn't a political discussion. It wasn't a public discussion. But as a black immigrant who didn't speak Swedish, I was experiencing the pushback before it was a national and international dialogue. So what does that mean? For example, Swedish people are quite reserved and they're quite polite. Um, they also have a propensity to drink quite a bit on Fridays and Saturdays. And so every Friday and Saturday, pretty much without fail, um, people would get very drunk and then the racial slurs would come and then people would offer to buy me one-way tickets back to Somalia. Um, and it was, it was difficult and it was confusing and it was upsetting because A, I had never been to Somalia or the continent of Africa. Um, so A, that wasn't real. <laughs> like you can't send me back to somewhere I've never come from. And B, if I was, why is that a problem? Right. So it was, it was very layered for me. It was even more layered because Swedish people love American culture as well. So people that did take the time, the one second that it would take to realize that I'm American and not, a, you know, whatever, um, loved me. But unlike my time in Germany, I was, I was more politically awake I was woke, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> Stay woke. And I understood that the kind of exoticism of my black skin and of my experience as a black man from the Bronx, so they love hip-hop culture, right? And the Bronx is where it started. And so I became... It was more less like meeting friends and more like, tell me everything about blackness. Is it... What is it really like that with the cops? What's it like? Or, you know, when I started growing my hair out, it was just like the entitlement to, I mean, people were just in it, you know? Um, someone said I was on a gay social app and someone said to me, oh, I just want to touch exotic skin. And I said, well, whose skin is exotic? And he said, yours. And I said, is it? I, I wasn't aware that it was exotic. I, I didn't know. And he said, yeah, because it's so dark. And I said, I think I'm just black, actually. And, you know, if, 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 and Sweden is probably the whitest place on earth, let's be honest. But if they had been living under a rock with no internet, no television, and hadn't gone outside for the last 40 years, that could be understandable. Yeah, Right. But Sweden has had open borders for 20 years. There's whole generations of not only immigrants, but children of immigrants who are actually Swedish, who are black or Middle Eastern, um, even some Asians. And I was in the second largest city in Sweden, which was a college town. There were two universities. So there's right. defi you're definitely seeing... 
and and just like access you're seeing walking down the street you're seeing people who look different and you know so so kind of this people who hate me who don't even know me and they're the kind of violent um attacks against me physical and verbal and i i'm from the bronx i had never been physically attacked until i went to safe and liberal sweden and then the flip side the other side of that which was i felt like a zoo animal or a mystical unicorn um not like a person like people saw a black a, a brown blob with nice features instead of seeing me um so i felt like i was getting it from both sides and then as an artist working um the microaggressions and the ignorance and you know i don't mean to to be mean or nasty to anyone but you know when you go to work and they give you makeup for white people you know that says to me that you don't see me thoughtless you know who i am you know me you can see that i'm brown but you just give me the same thing as everyone else i knew going into it because that is a part of the consciousness of being a black person and a black american i had to bring flesh-toned undergarments flesh-toned socks i had to bring my own makeup with me from new york to sweden because i anticipated that they would be ignorant and that is not fair Absolutely. No, absolutely. The The thing with the company is that dance is, what's so beautiful about dance is that it's an international art form because it's not word-based. So you can come from lots of different places and we all speak with our body. So it was a very international company. There were 40 dancers and we had 17 nationalities. The director was German. One of the rehearsal directors was French. One was Brazilian. One was Canadian. Um... The dancers came from all over the place. And so it was a huge melting pot. And we kind of all connected in this feeling of otherness and being outside of the Swedish culture. Because the Swedish culture can be quite closed. And it it can feel like... um, And as I said, they're very reserved. So if they haven't known you since they were children, and if you're not speaking the language... um, And I say that because they all speak perfect English. So that's why um, they like English, they speak perfect English, they watch movies in English, they watch television in English. So that's what I'm saying. It's not like going to a country where no one's speaking English. They understand you, they can communicate with you. Um, but if you don't have that kind of connection with them from a very young age, it's very hard to break in. And so socially I was suffering, which had never happened to me before because I've always been very social. Very social. It's never been a problem. Um, personally, I was suffering because of racism rearing its ugly head on either side of the spectrum. And artistically, I was doing well. And it, you know, I'm, I'm turning 30 in November and priorities shift and it just became a question of what's more important to me. That's why I'm excited to have you talking on the podcast, just because I think a lot of the things I talk about on this podcast are the dark side in relation to not having the work artistically, right. or not being satisfied artistically, not right. being the dark side, but I 
think it's important to acknowledge that you can have everything you ever wanted artistically and to feel like you're still not healthy or not satisfied. And so. And then making the choice to, to give it up, you, you yeah, know? And make a, a difficult choice that's healthy yeah. for you. Yeah, and it, and it has been healthy. Good. And it's been healing. Good. And, you know, I didn't realize how traumatized I was until I got back. And, you know, just the little things of being close to my family, birthdays, uh, little cookouts, seeing my friends, seeing you, mm-hmm. going to Collins, uh, bachelor weekend, yeah. you know, the amount of weddings that I've missed, the amount of birthdays that I've missed, um, the amount of important life moments that I've missed from my closest friends, it just started to not be worth it. And I think balance is important. And I think as we change and grow, our priorities change and grow. And the most important thing is to just be honest with yourself about where you're at in the moment and what's important to you in that moment. And then to be brave enough to listen and follow that, even if it takes you to a scary place. So when you are having a day where you're in the dark side and you're feeling uninspired and mm-hmm. unmotivated, are there things that you reach for again and again, like a, a book or a piece of music or Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, for me, it's important to, I need um, quiet space. I need to be able to push out all of the noise. And as I said, I've loved being back in New York, but this has been a completely different beast. And I lived most of my 20s in small towns in Europe. And I came back, and the city is raging and mad, and it doesn't stop. It doesn't slow down. It doesn't care if you're tired. It doesn't care if you're broke. And if you don't like it, somebody else will come in, and they'll be willing to do it. And so I've felt myself getting very close to my capacity several times. Um, I've been frustrated at a number of things several times. It's not been easy being back. And I have to schedule, and my life can become so oversaturated, like this city, that I've found that I actually need to schedule in, just like I schedule in a meeting, space. A time for me to not, for for myself, self-care. I need to schedule in moments. I need to go away for four days on a lake. (laughs) You know, I need to... I, I, I don't need to go, yeah, you know, I just, I, I can go in my room. I just, I, and I'm really social, so I think people don't really know this about me, but I need alone time. I mean, most of these places that I go, even when I go on vacation, it's alone. So I'm literally sitting there by myself because everything can seem so big. It can seem like so much is happening. And sometimes if you just drown out the noise and sit with yourself and reflect I always say reflection is as important as action because you realize that it's not that deep. So I'm sitting at home, I'm, and I have to tell myself, right now, I'm good. In this moment, nothing is actually happening to me. Right. I'm safe. I have a home. I'm not in pain. Yeah. I'm not hungry. I have walls covering me. There's no impending doom. Everything is in our head. And it's true. Ren is going to be doing the first. And I do need to find a space for the benefit concert. But I'm projecting 
I'm projecting anxiety. Right now, in this moment, I'm actually good. I write. I write in my journal. And I don't know. I just go. And it'll, it's probably schizophrenic if I ever read it back, like completely all over the place. But I've found the action of just putting pen to paper and letting it out in that way is very therapeutic. And then to the complete flip side of what I just said, um, being spending time with people who I really care about. And that was, I think, part of what, what I was, why I was so unbalanced in Sweden, because I didn't have that. So here... I can just let go and hang out with my friends and I don't have to think about all the other stuff because we can just have a moment. There's something also about if I do want to go there, knowing that there's a community of people here that I don't have to explain my existence to, they just get it. And that was another thing that, that I was missing. So when I'm in, when I'm having a dark moment, just knowing that I can talk to someone who understands without having to explain it has been very helpful for me. So yeah, so uh, personal space is big. Some sort of creative outlet, <laughs> which for me is writing. So I'm not saying dance, because for me, that's my job. So <laughs> it is an outlet, but it's also like my job. <laughs> um, so for me, writing does that. Um, and then very close friends that I can either vent to or be completely frivolous. Because sometimes, sometimes you just have to drink and... <laughs> yes, exactly. Sometimes you just need to twerk. <laughs> A sensible twerk never hurt anyone. <laughs> okay. This is going to sound horrible, but um, I have to say this because it's just so inspiring. But I was fortunate enough to see Hamilton. And it's been a theme. Really? It really. I saw the last time I saw it. Well, it was the summer. It was over the summer. Yeah. So I mean, we're still in the summer. So yeah, it was. Yeah, it's a beautiful show, and it reminded me how good art can be. We see so much bad art, and I don't want to quantify art or mediocre. Even worse, even worse, mediocre art. And this just hit me on so many levels so many levels and I understand that like it's really difficult for people to access so that's why I didn't even want to say it but if you can it just was so transformative so timely yeah. and what really inspired me about it and especially because of the work that I'm doing now is that this guy from Washington Heights he's from New York just like me just like all of the kids that I was teaching this summer um, Puerto Rican guy created this thing where he used the Broadway world, he used that formula of a musical. He took his experience as a Puerto Rican New Yorker from the Heights, as an ethnic person, and he brought all of those things together and wove them together in such a masterful way that became a global phenomenon that's moving 
musical theater forward. And so that was inspiring to me because what we're trying to teach our kids is not to assimilate, not to erase parts of themselves, but in fact that it's the things about them that aren't mainstream. We need to give you this information. You need this foundation. You need to take this ballet class and this contemporary class. But how can you use everything that you've learned from your cultural experience and infuse it into that thing to create something new and beautiful and different that we haven't seen already? And he did that so masterfully that it was just so inspiring to me. I... It, it's given me so much inspiration and I think it will con- I bought the soundtrack immediately and I listened to it over and over again you know I'm not going to throw away my shot it made me work harder yeah me too I, I this guy, who, first of all, I learned more about American history in three hours than I did in my entire education. And I just felt so lazy. I was like, this guy just did so much. There's that meme that was going around Facebook that said, like, you have the same number of hours in a day as Lynn manuel Exactly! What am I doing with my life? Yeah, exactly. I see it. Yeah. Okay, let's let's put in the work. Step it up. Put in the work. So it inspired me to do that. And yeah, so that that is that is that is the one. And I wish I could say something more accessible, but that is what it is. Wow. Wow. Oh wow, that's amazing. So I need to get back to listening to Well now yeah, and also it'd be great to see it now because the whole cast is different. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful show. It's a beautiful show. It's a beautiful message. It's a very American story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so timely. The stories that it, that uh, that it's telling are as relevant today as they were when the country was founded. I'm blessed, and I feel great that I got to witness it and that I could be inspired by it so that I could continue to create. Yeah. Yeah. Nigel, thank you. Thank you so much. This was great, so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. I'm Leah Walsh. More episodes are coming soon. Please look for us on Facebook and iTunes. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller. Music by Brendan Spieth. Audio assistance from Nick Choksi and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.